This is Inside Berkeley. I'm Kim Ashton. On this episode, we talk to Larry Watson, a professor in Berkeley's ensemble department who teaches the Motown course, the history, music, and culture of the African-American class, and runs stage performance technique workshops. Outside of the classroom, Larry's a sought-after performer and a recording artist, as well as an author, an esteemed community activist, and an artist-in-residence at the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice at Harvard Law School. Larry Watson, welcome to Inside Berkeley. Thank you so much for having me, and it's wonderful to meet you. One of the things you said you believe about music is that it should have a message. And at your position at the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute at Harvard, you work with its director, Professor Charles Ogletree, to punctuate political dialogue with artistry. How do you do this? When Dr. Martin Luther King first started to journey around the country to spread his message, he asked Reverend C.L. Franklin, who was the first black minister in the United States to receive a very lucrative million-dollar record deal, could he borrow his daughter? his daughter being the great Aretha Franklin. And before Dr. King spoke, Aretha Franklin always sang. So when we go back and read the history of civil rights, you have to wonder whether or not it was Aretha's singing that helped to so much punctuate those great speeches by Dr. Martin Luther King. In the tradition, the African descent tradition of music, uh, oratory and vocal performance go hand in hand. The spoken word along with the rhythm of that word along with music really are kind of twins. And so Charles recognizing the importance of the cultural tradition and the importance of cultural expression, he's always uh, implemented and uh, had music to be a part of those great programs. So you have these very cutting edge scholars talking about very dense material. And sometimes it adds a great deal to relax people and to get people to reflect in another way when you can deliver a song that complements what the speaker is going to talk about. And uh, I understand that you've sung in front of Trayvon Martin's parents, too. Yes, that was a very moving experience when uh, Professor Ogletree uh, had the institute to look at uh, the legacy of Trayvon Martin and violence within our inner cities and police brutality. And uh, I was really a little, had some trepidations about singing this song I had written uh, called Half Empty Glass. And the song takes this notion of, oh, things are bad, but they're going to get better. See, the glass of water's half full. And says, no, sometimes the glass is half empty. The treacherous murder of Trayvon Martin, the glass was empty. And so the song says, at that point, we all have to pour faith in our half-empty glass. We've got to find something that regenerates our energies and helps us to refocus our determination and our steadfastness to move forward. And so I sang the song for her, and the song had a collage of pictures of her son Trayvon, but it also had a collage of pictures of Mr. Harabalafonte and others who have worked tirelessly to address social justice in the nation. And she came up to us. I was with a number of Berkeley students that I wanted to have that experience with me. And she was really moved by the presentation. So that really made me feel very good and helped me to deal with my grief around this horrible uh, murder uh, pattern of black men in our 
urban cities. And we have a clip of that uh, song now. Could you set this up for us and talk about what you were feeling when you wrote this song? Well, um, I was dealing with a Berkeley alum who was from Hungary, and he had this notion of America as this stoic, incredible place and black people as America's greatest heroes. And I said, well, wait until you've been here for a while. You'll begin to see another side of our great country. So he was rushing me through in the recording session and saying, look, you've changed all these songs. You're not going to touch this one. You're not going to touch the melody. You're not going to touch anything. You're going to sing it just like I wrote it. And I said, you know, you keep rushing through life like this, running red lights. You're going to miss so much. And that was the first line of the song. And then uh, I got to sing the song with one of my all-time heroes, uh, the great Tata Vega, who was the voice in the classic movie, The Color Purple, and is now on the road with Elton John. So this song has been a great healing piece for many people. As a matter of fact, a woman in Boston that I have worked on community events with who is one of the um, park policemen down at uh, the African meeting house she used to be. Her son had been uh, murdered and uh, she wanted me to sing at the funeral and I was out of town and I could not. And uh, six months later, I did this song at a community event. I'm a part of a group called Community Change and community change does a lot to eradicate racism uh, statewide and nationally. And I sang this song, Half Empty Glass. And when I had completed the song, his mother said, now I have grieved properly. Thank you. Wow. That's a great story. Let's take a listen to that song now. You can rush through life running red lights, pushing and shoving along. Never taking time to see what you may have missed out on Now the years have passed and the sun has set You view life through a crowded lens Blinded by tears, you mastered the art of regret your best friend, it's time to tear down that fence Don't you look at that half-empty glass Don't ever be sorry for your past Pull yourself You talk a lot about music having a message and uh, that we should really be aware that music comes from a place, that uh, a history and, and a particular culture. And this is what you try to teach at Berkeley, too. Why is it important that students understand the history of music, uh, the music that they sing and the music they listen to, in particular, many of the genres that have sprung from the African-American diaspora? Because history is preface. And if we don't understand the history, and the cultural context of the music, then we're only dealing in the appropriation of the music. Uh, when we look at Motown, for example, and I'm the Motown person here at Berkeley, we recognize that Barry Gordy recognized in the conception and development of television, that could be a real tool being used to foster integration and to change the image of black people who up until that point had been known for minstrelsy and had been seen as minstrels and, and characters on the Amos and Andy show. And so Barry Gordy set out to 
transform the image of black folks. And in order to do that, he had to have historical uh, literacy. And as he did that, we came into America's living rooms through the television. It was the first time that America was seeing black people in another context. If you don't understand history, when I teach the Motown course, students don't understand the double meaning when black sang because it was illegal for us to read, illegal for us to write. So we had to use double messages and hidden messages to communicate and to leave for ne- uh, for future generations this great historical legacy. So take, for example, and I'm in horrible voice today, the song My Girl, one of America's greatest pieces. Well, when you sing, I've got sunshine on a cloudy day, when it's cold outside, I've got the month of May. It's a beautiful love song. But if you think of 16 and 70-year-old black children on a bus driving through the South to tour, and passing by lynchings, and having people to call them niggers, and throwing bottles at their bus. Sing it again. I've got sunshine on a cloudy day, that no matter what you do to me, when it's cold outside, I've got the month of May, that that shows the resilience and the genius and the, and the tenacity of people of African descent to weather this storm. So the song takes on another meaning, but if you didn't understand the context by which that song was written and what was going on in America, you would never know the context without the history. Mm-hmm. And that tradition continues today in hip hop. Yes, it does. It has been marred and it has been camouflaged for the last 15 years uh, because of the commercialization of hip hop. Uh, where a stream of hip-hop known as gangster rap and others have kind of been front and center as America has been introduced to a modern-day minstrel. And so for a very long time, that music justified the horrendous public policies in the cities and states that have kept black people and poor people marginally uh, at the peripheries of our society. But there are other young artists coming up, many of them coming out of Berkeley and other places, that are really tired of that and are looking at new ways to communicate a very old story. And so you are getting, uh, like Kendrick Lamar and others, who, though flawed, uh, tell a very compelling story. And it's up to me as a teacher and young artists coming out of Berkeley to work with artists like that to make sure that they have clarity on history. And that will make for a much more strong cultural statement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you involve a lot of Berkeley students in in many of the projects you do um, outside of the classroom. Why is it important to expose these students to an extracurricular environment? I think we must do that. I think in 2015, the classroom cannot just be four walls. It has to go outside into the community because after all, when our students are finished studying, they've got to transition into the work world. And I believe like the late Betty Carter, I see myself, I model my behavior after her. She only worked with very young musicians and she on stage did what I call, what I do and what she did, edutainment. That while she was singing these great jazz classics, she was turning around and giving an eye at the bass player or the piano player that what they were doing was not right. And so I think that as someone reached out and helped me 
it is essential that we do the same thing. If we want to have progressive leaders and we want cultural expression to be used in the most meaningful way to uplift people, then we've got to reach back. I don't see my students as competing with me, and I'm not competing with them. I see my job as an elder to when I get an opportunity to treat those students like professionals, to pay them what I'd pay the, quote, professionals. But you're not a professional just because you're old. So this idea that I would hire you just because you're old or because you've played on the road with five or six people, to me, is a, a straitjacket. That I love seeing new, hungry, excited young artists that have studied their craft and are respectful and professional. And so I've taken them with me to Columbia, South America. I've taken them with me to Singapore. And I know that you've done some work closer to home, too, with Berkeley students. Can you talk a little bit about that? I have taken Berkeley students with me. It's a must when I've done events at the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute. Uh, I've had students to sing with me for Supreme Court justices and take those photos. Uh, One of the students that I've spent a considerable amount of time with, when he was just a pre-freshman, we traveled to Martha's Vineyard with several other students and some faculty members, and he got to meet Barry Gordy, the founder of Motown Records. And there's this wonderful historic picture of he and Barry Gordy shaking hands. I like to think of that picture as Barry Gordy passing the torch to Desmond Scaife Jr., who I think one day is going to really be one of the pivotal uh, sparks and leaders that's going to bring the music back to the glory it once knew. And Desmond is a current Berkeley student, right? Yes, he's going into his senior year next year. So I'm uh, excited about him and several others who have carried that torch. One of the great examples of a song that you've performed and you did a new arrangement for that is... um, that speaks to what you're talking about, about music having a message, is Lift Every Voice. Can you tell me a little bit about your arrangement? Lift Every Voice started out as a poem written by James Weldon Johnson uh, as a tribute to the centennial of President Abraham Lincoln. And it grew as a small poem uh, done in churches to becoming a poem recited at conventions. And then his brother wrote the music for it, and the word, they collaborate music and words, and then it went all over the world. And so now Lift Your Voice and Sing, which uh, James Weldon Johnson was one of the founders of ASCAP. Many people don't know that because BMI was not very generous in allowing black people to join. So ASCAP came about. And uh, so I, in the tradition of the song, have been doing the song for the last 25 years. I call it the Nelson Mandela arrangement because I premiered it to the world when Nelson Mandela was released from prison and came to Boston on the Esplanade. And so I've done the song all over the world, and it is what African Americans consider to be uh, our national anthem. We sing both anthems, the American national anthem, and then we sing the black national anthem. Let's uh, take a listen to that song now. Lift every voice and sing
Another one of your songs talks about the issue of identity and accepting who you are. It's called Secrets. Could you tell me what, how the song came about and what's the message in the song? Wow, that's a very personal and heavy-duty song. I think, honestly, the song came about when I looked around and recognized how many secrets were in my family, secrets I had, secrets that nations had, secrets that people walk around with that just hold them down. And I thought I needed to write a song about this. And so I did. And after I had written the song, I remember trying to engage my mother in a conversation about an experience I had as a child. And my mother uh, was not willing, uh, she played amnesia. She didn't want to talk about it. And it made me think, am I delusional? Did I dream this? Or did this really occur in my life? Was I a casualty, or or at that time a casualty, uh, of uh, a kind of uh, abuse? Not by my mom, but by a distant relative. And so I remember talking to my aunt and saying, did this relative come and visit us in the summer? And she said, yes, and I have pictures. Which made me know that my aunt was sending me a message that it did happen. And so I wrote this song about secrets because I think if music can be so empowering, if people listen to the song, they can realize that so many things we hold and think will destroy us if they are made public. Won't do that at all. What it will really do is really heal us. I can't keep this secret anymore. It's time to change my ways. Finding you has made me stronger than before I'm facing better days I've kept the secret so deep in Larry Watson, thanks so much for joining us at Inside Berkeley today. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And uh, all the people out there listening support Berkeley and all of our programs because we're trying to make a difference. And It's wonderful to meet you, and I enjoyed the interview very much. You as well. Thank you. This episode was engineered by students Taylor Gilberti and Stephen Shaw in partnership with The Burn. I'm Kim Ashton for Inside Berkeley. Inside Berkeley.